Blog Talk Radio. Greetings. Thank you for joining me, Sherry Jefferson. I'm live with Sherry as we discuss today's episode, Unconstitutional Laws in the State of Georgia. One of the reasons why I believe it is important and significant that I present this information to you in the listening audience is because the state of Georgia has been priding itself, if you will, over the last two years as a state that is moving forward with criminal justice reform. And part of that reform would be include and not be limited to their position that they are on the cutting edge of trying to prevent individuals from entering the system and, more importantly, trying to provide programs and services for those that are reentering into society. In the course of them engaging in those activities, they have also attempted to present themselves as being proactive in addressing issues pertaining to collateral consequences of those individuals who enter into the system. But it has been for me and others over the last couple of months, particularly the last nine months, that we're finding that not only are several laws in the state of Georgia unconstitutional, but the United States District Court Judge for the Northern District Atlanta Division, uh, Atlanta Division, Northern District, has recently, I believe Judge Marvin Schub, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, S-H-O-O-B, has basically recently issued a ruling concerning the constitutionality of Georgia's garnishment of wages law. And I have personally been pursuing the state to address the constitutionality of five criminal statutes. So this is not just Sherry Jefferson saying that there's a problem here in the state of Georgia. And so I'm going to bring this show to you today to present to you several laws that are criminal laws that subject people to deprivation of their liberties, core liberty interest, and how these particular laws are written, why our Georgia General Assembly doesn't know at the time that they're writing this legislation and enacting it, and the governor is signing it, that these laws avoid for vagueness. And we're going to discuss a lot of that and more when we return. Thank you for joining me. As I recently said at the break, the United States District Court Northern District Atlanta Division recently written a court order that was by Honorable Marvin Schaub, and which, based on his ruling, he's declared Georgia's garnishment of wages statute to be unconstitutional. The litigation was filed against the clerk of court for Gwinnett County in which they were knowingly and willingly garnishing the wages of individuals, particularly those on fixed income, public welfare benefits, social security, disability, etc. And although that particular ruling pertains to that case or county, one would clearly surmise that where you're certain that the law is unconstitutional as to that county, then obviously it's unconstitutional as to all the citizens of Georgia. How then do we as citizens and individuals of the legal community not look to a case like that to say what is the problem? How in 2015 do we still have members of our General Assembly and legislatures write in legislation that they know or have reason to know is constitutionally invalid and moreover void for vagueness or violates the overbreath doctrine? How is it that we don't know these things at the time that we're writing? Who is available 
to our governor before he signs law to say this is this is this is incorrect. What does it do to individuals in this state to be victims of unconstitutional laws? Well, let me bring you closer to the issue for this show. There are five, five Georgia criminal statutes that are unconstitutional. They're clearly void for vagueness. And with that being said, let's start with the first one that is of importance and significance. OCGA 1611-40 criminalizes individuals for free speech. So this is a First Amendment issue wherein you could be subject to criminal charges in the state of Georgia for defamation of character. Now, most lawyers, like the lawyer in this particular case who originally tried to proceed with this, Mrs. what is her name? I can't even remember her name, but it's going to come to me before this show ends. Miss Shield Ages assisted a client of hers and presented a private citizen warrant for defamation of character. It's the first time myself and most of my colleagues that even knew anything about a defamation of character for criminal offenses. So that if you initiate proceedings against somebody civilly and you can't meet the elements, we all know, those of us who practice and even those of us who don't, that the burden for criminal law is much greater, the burden of persuasion, that is, than civil law. So if you don't have the ability to meet the elements under civil, why then would you try to proceed with criminal? Set that aside for purposes of this show, and let's go further and deeper into the conversation. Who would and what state would enact legislation that could criminalize free speech, the First Amendment violation? And so many of us, particularly those who work in the media, those who have blog shows, those who otherwise would see things and call them as they are, Never do so with the belief that you're going to be sued for defamation of character civilly, let alone have someone attempt to criminalize your behaviors. And what is even interesting is the elements of Georgia's law that has to be satisfied, that people who use that statute know or have reason to know can't be satisfied before they try to initiate those proceedings, which is probably why people choose the private citizen route, because I don't think that there's a police department in this country that would actually execute a warrant for an individual for defamation of character. What would that do to members of the media if you spoke on a subject matter that you believe is a public concern? And then some attorney decides, for profit or otherwise, that he or she is going to assist somebody in initiating defamation of character. And this is particularly true under a circumstance where the evidence would speak for itself that the person's character isn't defamed. The person's character spoke for itself and was further demonstrated and is proven by photographs, right? So for one, in Georgia, you have 1611 and 40, which criminalizes free speech and basically leaves the onus on the person who is spoken to say, I have not committed defamation of character because the statements are true, the statements are not a reckless disregard of truth, it did not create an array, which Georgia law requires, that has to be a violation of order of, of peace. So there's this, like five or six different elements that have to be satisfied. And you can't have a statute that allows someone to believe that he or she can initiate criminal charges against someone for defamation of character, merely thinking that they secured one or met one 
out of six elements. For a criminal statute, you must meet every single element. That's fundamental criminal procedure 101, okay? Notwithstanding that, the criminal statute cannot be vague and ambiguous. In Derek, the I-E-R-E-C-K versus the um, U.S., that the courts, the United States Supreme Court held in that case that the unambiguous words of a criminal statute cannot be altered to subject someone to punishment, no matter how deserving the punishment could be. It's not subject to judicial construction. We have all learned, those of us who practice criminal law and understand criminal procedure and the drafting of legislation, that criminal statutes must be strictly interpreted. They're never subject to judicial construction, right? So what is the legislative intent? So in the state of Georgia, where you look at 1611 and 40, is it really the legislative intent to criminalize free speech? Is it? I would hope not, because to do so would mean that it would be violations of the First Amendment right. We have the right in this country to say what we want to say, say how we want to be able to say it, those of us, particularly in the media, particularly in as long as that information is true and correct. Now, if an individual is offended by what one has to say, so what? Offense is not an element of a criminal statute under OCGA 1611 and 40. Period. So if an individual takes 20-some-odd pictures and takes those pictures, Ms. Bettina Lawanda Moore, and those pictures appear on social media or anywhere where someone has access to them, and you may be offended that those photos are made available to a third person, that is not defamation of character. The depiction of an individual in such photos containing actual or constructive possession of alcohol, if the photos speak that language, then that is what it is. And that's not defamation of character. So if you have a statute that is vague and ambiguous, that is subject to more than one meaning, that is not being strictly interpreted by attorneys, which we would hope that they are, and therefore have those laws on the book, and they violate the First Amendment, one's right to free speech, and they're vague and ambiguous in terms of language and terminology, and there are no constitutional safeguards afforded in the statute that protects for free speech or even commercial speech for that matter, then guess what? It's an unconstitutional law, and it is subject to either being abolished, repealed, or amended. We'll be back to discuss the others. Thank you for joining me, Sherry, on Live with Sherry, as we discuss five Georgia criminal statutes which are clearly unconstitutional. The next we're going to discuss is OCGA 1611 and 39.1, also referred to as Senate Bill 40 or the Act, ACT. And under that statute, 1611 and 39.1, excuse me, is known for harassing telephone communication. It says a person commits the offense of harassing telephone calls if such person telephones another person repeatedly, whether or not a conversation ensues, for the purpose of annoying, harassing, or molesting another, or the family of such other person, uses a telephone language threatening bodily harm. Well, what happens if none of that transpires? This is a very wordy statute. And several states have similar statutes, but they're not sloppily worded 
as in this particular case. And let me quote something. I highly suggest that you look. I think it's the Skillins, Skillins case, if I stand to be corrected, for those of my lawyers out there. Um, I think, give me a minute. I'm going to tell you the case I want you to follow because I love the language that the United States Supreme Court uses to address um, statutes that are sloppily worded, which is the term that the courts uh, use. And I think it is worth noting. I think it's Skillins, S-K-I. Yeah, I think it's Skillins. If you get around to it, look at that case. If I stand to be corrected, I'm almost sure that's the case. But nevertheless, yeah, it's Skillings, S-K-I-L-L-I-N-G versus the United States at 130. Um, it's a 2010 case, um, and I think it's worth reviewing that and Gonzalez versus Carr. Hart, H-A-R-T, 550 U.S. 124. I think those two cases are are very interesting because the United States Supreme Court said that no one may be required at pearl of life, liberty, or property to speculate as to the meaning of a penal law. Everyone is entitled to know what the government commands or forbids. Okay, keeping that in mind, let's go back over a harassing tech statute. So, uh, harassing call. So let's say I have a general conversation with somebody, and I'm not doing it by telephone, but by text messaging. At what point is the term repeatedly? Is repeatedly one text message or one phone call? Is it five text messages or five phone calls? Is it 20? Is it subject to the discretion of the judge or the police officer? Because if you have that, then we have what? Arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement. So where you have a law that is sloppily worded, like this law for Georgia, OCGA 1611.39.1, what is repeatedly? Is it 1, 10, or 20? What is the definition of annoying? You might annoy me in your first phone call and then call me back. Do I now get to take a warrant out for your arrest? What is the definition of harassing? And what is the definition to molest another person? And why are we particularly as it pertains to a generation of young children who rely on texting and emails on such a regular basis to have these type of laws on the book to start with. How many young kids get into arguments with their boyfriends or girlfriends, and she calls, he calls her back, she texts, he texts her back, she takes to Facebook, he takes to Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. And then we're going to take these young kids to court? And we're going to have them arrested under OCGA 1611 and 39.1. At some point, if you're purporting that you're for criminal justice reform, then you would be for decriminalizing every activity that every human being engages in. If you look at the state of Georgia, like so many of the seven southern states, it was in 1968, after, after the death of Dr. Martin Luther King, that all of a sudden, regular activities basically became crimes. Where it appears that in 1968, you look at the history of the legislations of 1968 and the seven southern states, particularly in Georgia, okay, and in Alabama and Mississippi, you will see dozens of new activities or acts that were now defined or became or become crimes. It's interesting to note. So when you look at something like this, you say to yourself, why? Why do we need this legislation worded this way? Now, surely if I pick the phone up and I tell you I'm going to kill you, you son of a blink blink, or I'm going to bring harm to you, you better believe that's a threat. And, yes, it's subject to criminal charges, and it should be. 
But at what is the definition? So now just because someone feels annoyed or harassed, that's a crime? Well, maybe that's how you felt that day. So let me look back at the number of people I know that are married who text their spouses about 20, 30 times a day. Or let me look back at the number of colleagues who send me texts throughout the day or me or me send them, right? So how many warrants for our arrest can be taken out based on this statute, right? Simply worded. So now we extended in Georgia under the Senate Bill 40 and we and 87, excuse me, uh, and then we add to that, and we uh, Senate Bill 72 Act 40, my bad, Senate Bill 72 Act 40, which went into effect July 1st. And then we say we're going to add to that, contacts another person repeatedly via telecommunication, email, text, messaging, or any other form for purposes of harassing or molesting, threatening or intimidating. Okay, so now we've removed annoyance because they know that that's wrong. And they knew that that was vague and ambiguous, and we add to it harassing, threatening, or intimidating. What does that really mean? I can understand threatening and intimidating, yes, but what is harassing and what is molesting? Another such person or the family of such persons. The offense of harassing communication shall be considered to have been committed in the county where the defendant was located or the call was received. Okay, so in actuality, you're trying to get it on both ends. Well, that's a problem. That's forum shopping. Because if it's in the place where the individual is located, then what if that person's out of the country at the time? You have no jurisdiction. Okay, well, it's where the person received the call. Okay, so are you going to rely on a ping system to tell you where the person received the call? Because they may not have necessarily received it in your county, but their phone may be registered in your county. So who who carries the burden of proving where that call was received before a warrant can be executed. Is that a, the, do you arrest them in their home county and then find out later that the ping shows that they received the call in another county? So then who has jurisdiction? Or do you now having arrested that person and prepared them for court, are you now subject to double jeopardy because you can't go back now and say, well, we were in error, we arrested you here, but guess what, Paul? It didn't take place in this county, it took place in another. A lot of this verbiage. It goes on to state, the code section shall not apply to constitutionally protected speech. What is constitutionally protected speech for purposes of this statute? And what 17-year-old juvenile knows what constitutionally protected speech is? How many adults, how many lawyers, obviously, for the lawyers who participated in this foolishness, how many of these lawyers know what constitutionally protected speech is? When we come back, we'll discuss the other criminal statutes in Georgia that are subjecting individuals to deprivation of their core liberties. We'll be back. Thank you for joining me on Live with Sherry as we discuss today's episode, Five Georgia Criminal Statutes Unconstitutional. They're just unconstitutional. They're void for vagueness. The overbreath doctrine is applicable to all of these that I'm going over with you. Why is this important? It's important because particularly I take myself out of the situation and I put the average 17 to 21-year-old college student, high school student, and I look at some of these statutes and I think, wow, how many of these young men and women 
are going to be subject to deprivation of their core liberty right, that is, subject to arrest and detention and the collateral consequences thereof because of sloppily worded criminal statutes. And that how many public defenders, who many of them have to rely upon, will have the time to take to actually file under Rule 5.1 a notice of a constitutional challenge pertaining to the language of statutes. Our Attorney General of the United States, Ms. Loretta Lynch, recently wrote a press release for the United States Department of Justice uh, for an amicus brief that they filed in a Pennsylvania case in which they are questioning whether or not individuals who have been the subject of ineffective assistance of counsel can file civil lawsuits now against these offices of public defenders. And one of the things that she says in this brilliant uh, press release is not only can they, we support them doing it because we want the Sixth Amendment to be upheld. Okay, It's not simply a matter of you, quote, unquote, appointing a member of the bar but this individual having the ability to effectively represent the interest of that individual, investigate the claims, and be able to effectively assist them in defending against those claims. So when you look at a state like Georgia that has five, five unconstitutional criminal statutes, while we're positioning ourselves in this state as one who is attempting to be on the cutting edge of criminal justice reform, then why is it taking you all so long to change this? An executive order could easily say no one else should be subject to any deprivations based on these statutes. The next one that is worth noting that, again, you think about kids age 17 to 21, and a lot of our juveniles, even that are between the ages of 9 to 16 years of age, equally can be the subject of these particular criminal statutes and could be a judge delinquent for the same. And again, who's taken the time to say that these are constitutionally void for vagueness? These are unconstitutional laws and that individuals should not be the subject of detention or arrest based upon these. OCGA 16.5 and 90 says a person commits the offense of stalking when he or she follows, places under surveillance, or contacts another person at or about a place or places without the consent of the other person for purposes of harassing and intimidating. So if the purpose is not to harass and intimidate, then guess what? There's no stalking, right? Okay, well, let's go a step further. It says that the definition of harassing and intimidating means a knowing and willful course of conduct directed at a specific person which causes emotional distress by placing such person in reasonable fear. What is the definition, ladies and gentlemen, of reasonable fear? It says for such person's safety or safety of a member of his or her family by establishing a pattern of harassing and intimidating behaviors. Ladies and gentlemen, what is the pattern? Once a day, once a month, once every five days? Because here's the reality. What if you haven't spoken or seen or done anything with a person in over six months, but then they try and take a warrant out for your arrest? Well, was there a pattern and a practice at that point in time? I don't think so. It says, or to, for which serves no legitimate purpose. Well, who defines what the legitimacy is? Right? Who's defining the legitimate purpose? And this is where the rubber meets the road. If 
Georgia defines under OCGA 16.5 and 90 the terms harassing and intimidating. And why didn't you define it the OCGA 16.11 and 39.1? And you don't get to say, well, it's been defined in another part of the statute and therefore it applies. No, that's not how it works, right? Interesting enough, you don't include in this particular statute the language under Senate Bill 72, Act 40, quote, unquote, constitutionally protected speech, but you include it in the other statute. So the point I'm making is if we are defining definitions in terms of the purpose of an article in one statute, how are we justifying not defining it in another? Finally, OCGA 17.4 and 40, it's another statute in Georgia which authorizes and clearly violates a United States Supreme Court holding in Linder R.S. versus Richard D. and Leak versus Timmerman. Citations omitted. You could look those up, counselors. And what is interesting about this, for me as an attorney, is I think if these laws are unconstitutional in myriad ways and they know they violate the supremacy clause and core civil rights and liberties secured by the U.S. Constitution, including our First Amendment free speech, Fourth Amendment right to freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures, that are the subject of allegedly violating these laws, and 14th Amendment guarantees the equal protection and due process under the law, it also violates separation of powers and safeguarding the Georgia Constitution. Because again, we're basically allowing for judges to construct laws, and they're not supposed to be authorized to do that. So if and when our legislature, the Georgia General Assembly, or our governor would perform their duties accordingly or through the attorney general's office, it would suggest that when writing these laws, or more importantly, when applying them, that we would do it in a way that provides constitutional safeguards. Because as these laws are written, they are clearly unconstitutional, as applied, I'm sure, in many regards, and facially. Where we knowingly have laws on our books where the Supreme Court has already issued holdings between the 1970s and 2010. How many times do we have to keep saying it's unconstitutional, it's unconstitutional, it's unconstitutional, before we realize that these particular laws constitute a sweeping and comprehensive state scheme regulating prosecutorial and law enforcement duties to private citizens in violation? of the United States holding. It makes me think about the holding of three, under the three strikes legislation when Justice Scalia is basically saying, along with Chief Justice Roberts, well, how many times are we going to have to be brought before these cases are going to be brought, for our, brought before our court? So it allowed me to even examine the issue a little further to say, even for same-sex marriage, is Georgia going to sit back and say, we know what the U.S. Supreme Court said, but we're not going to honor it? So I say to you in the listening audience, particularly those of you in the state of Georgia and my buddies who are in Washington who have no problem with class action litigation, Georgia has several unconstitutional laws that violate 
the overbreath doctrine, and that are also void for vagueness. There are individuals whose civil liberties are being violated as a result of these laws. And because most of these laws, even when given a fair reading, they do not give the slightest hint to the alleged accused who are the subject of this, these statutes as to their rights. And that violates due process. And so it is my hope that we have a Georgia General Assembly or a governor who steps up and says these are facially unconstitutional. They're in violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. They violate the First Amendment. They violate the Fourth Amendment because individuals' rights to freedom are being violated. What can we do? We can change them. We don't need a U.S. District Court to tell us that we have to change it, but we will if we have to. Thank you for joining me on Blog Talk Radio. Be blessed and be encouraged.